0: Hey, gang, want to start with a quick shout out to the product and engineering team at the 10% Happier app. They've just added a new dark mode theme to the app. It's available on your iOS and your Android version. That reduces the brightness so that if you're meditating early in the morning or in your evenings, that makes the experience more soothing for your eyes. I did it for the app, and then I did it for my whole phone. I actually really like it. So go check that out. And if uh, you haven't tried the app, don't forget, we've got a free seven-day trial. You can do it anytime. All right, let's get to this week's episode. Our guest is Susan Pollack. She's interesting for so many reasons. She's a uh, a psychologist in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She's been meditating and doing yoga for many, many years. Uh, she's also the co-founder and a teacher at the Center for Mindfulness and Compassion at Harvard Medical School. There are two big themes here that we explore. One is the overlap between meditation and therapy and how those two can work in concert. She is a therapist who also talks about and teaches meditation to her patients. And this is the other theme we explore. She has just written a book about self-compassion for parents. I was a little worried about leaning too hard into the parenting angle here because some of you may not be parents, but she she goes pretty deep into the fact that her self-compassion practices, which are designed for parents, can be used by parents anyone. So you, in some ways, you can think about this episode as a kind of bonus to the ongoing self-compassion series we've been doing for the past couple of weeks. So uh, we talk about working with shame as a parent. We talk about working with murderous rage. Uh, we talk about what to do when your kid's having a temper tantrum. And We also ca- talk about snowplow parenting. So a lot here. Here we go. Susan Pollack. All right. Okay. Thanks for doing this. Great My to see you.
1: pleasure. Good to be here. Thank you.
0: As you know, I ask everybody uh, how they got into meditation. I know in your case it started young.
1: Really young. And it's kind of a colorful story. So this was mid-60s. I was in elementary school, and my aunt, Faye, who um, was then a journalist in New York, was sent on assignment to cover the first Swami guru who opened an ashram, which is a spiritual center in New York. Um, and she went to meditate, learn meditation yoga, and it really spoke to her. So over the summer, when she came to visit her sister, my mother, she taught us all to meditate and yoga. And there was something about it that really clicked for me. And as you can imagine, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that, just because as I teach meditation, try to talk to people about meditation, I think, what was it that was powerful for me? And I grew up in a pretty intense environment, a lot of competition, a lot of striving. I was kind of a neurotic kid, slightly anxious. I had migraines. And what worked for me about meditation was I felt like it was a refuge. I felt like I could relax I didn't feel like I had to work so hard. I could just rest. So I loved it. And then um Faye being, you know, a sharp journalist was always interested in the next hot story or the next new idea. So every um school vacation that I could, I'd go to visit Faye. And there was always some new teacher, or guru, and these were some of the really wonderful teachers in the 60s and 70s um, who came through town. So I got to sit with Ramdas and and Krishnamurti and study and sit with Zen masters and Sufi masters and Sikhs um, and do retreats. So for me, it was a perfect training to become a scholar in comparative religion, um,
0: so that's what you did before you became a head shrinker, a shrink. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I um, had a, got a degree um, in comparative religion. I then went to Harvard divinity school, continued my interest in comparative religion, and there was one course that I really loved that was taught by the theologian Harvey Cox um, called Comparative Monasticism. Hmm. So he took us on retreats in every tradition. So there was a Christian retreat in a Benedictine monastery. Um, There was a Buddhist retreat with Larry Rosenberg, um, who uh, you were talking about the other day with Narayan. Uh, There was a retreat at Shambhala. So we got to experience deep meditation in many different traditions. And I would have gone on to become a scholar, even though I wasn't a very good linguist. I would have forced myself to learn, you know, the Sanskrit and the German and the Tibetan that I needed. But what pivoted me out of um, religion, other than the fact that there were no jobs. I mean, it's <laughs> not exact, exactly a thriving market. You know, I went to find Pfizer's. In fact, said, Susan, I know you really love this and you're good at it and if you're independently wealthy great but if you need to make a living do something else um so at that point i'd gotten myself into therapy um for yourself for myself and in some ways following mindfulness meditation that early made me a bit of an outlier so i remember i don't know if you had show and tell in elementary school. But I remember going to, doing show and tell, um, I think I was in fifth or sixth grade. And at that point, my aunt had taken me to hear Swami Satyananda. And um, he was this incredibly charismatic teacher, long, flowing hair, big beard. And um, we'd gone into the center and there was incense and people were... Dancing and singing, and there's this incredible sense of joy that I certainly didn't get um, going to temple. And I remember in Show and Tell talking about this experience and describing the rickety stairs in the old
0: building and
2: the
1: incense and the By temple, dancing. you mean
0: going to temple with your family? With my the family. Jewish family,
1: okay. Um, suburban Jewish family. I know you the know. make and model. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Similar. So I remember talking about Swami Satrananda, and he has a saying that um, was a very po- popular poster in the 70s, which is you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. And it's a picture of Swami Satrananda on a surfboard with a big wave, just still, calm, and smiling. So anyway, I tell my um, elementary school class, and one kid turns around, screws up her nose, and says, Susan, you are weird. <laughs> um, so I kept it very quiet. And
0: That's traumatic, actually.
1: Well, you yeah, know, you know, years of therapy. <laughs> um, so anyway, I became interested in psychology. And also at that point, and this is a longer conversation, um, there were a number of scandals. And I, as there still within are Buddhist within Buddhist communities, and or not just Hindu communities. any, almost every spiritual community. And I thought, what is going on here? And that got me very interested in human psychology. You know, why are these teachers who are supposedly enlightened behaving like this?
0: Well, that's a question I've put to. Many people who've sat in your chair, um, many podcast guests, Mm -hmm. many prior guests. Why do allegedly enlightened teachers do such horrible things? Is it because clearly they're not enlightened, or is enlightenment not what we think?
1: Well, no simple answer, and I'm someone who likes evidence. So I have worked with a lot of people who've been abused. I do a lot of trauma work. But I haven't really sat with a spiritual teacher who's been abusive. So I don't want to answer that without evidence. But one of the things that has guided me, and this was a saying um, that a friend who was a rabbi um, told me, and actually he said this was from his grandmother. We were having a conversation about abuse in so many religious circles. And he said, well, you know what my grandmother says? And I said, what? And... He said, she says, the bigger the front, the bigger the back. (laughs) So anyway, this is a longer conversation, but I think there's so many unmet needs um, that people have, so many wounds. And often people who go on the world stage have something they need to prove. Um, And also I think it's true that Absolute power corrupts, absolutely, and people start abusing their students.
0: Yeah, but if you're enlightened, if you've gone through if decades of meditation in a cave or anywhere, really, and you've trained your mind not to be so susceptible to greed, hatred, and delusion, that, to me, is what's hard to compute.
1: Exactly, and I'm totally with you on that. And there are stories about these enlightened monks who've been meditating in a cave for decades and then come down from the mountaintop into the world and get caught up into, into the stream of life and human longings and human desires. So it may be that um, it's harder to extinguish greed, hatred, and illusion
0: than we thought.
1: But I like to think of that as an open question. I think we really don't know. But it's certainly worth
0: study. Does it make you think, well, why are we meditating in the first place? If...
1: Well, I have gone through those periods where I've been in a group, there's been some sort of scandal, um, and I think, what am I doing? And there have been times when I've taken a sabbatical. And then there's something that brings me back to the practice. And... What it is, is that we're all so human, we're all fallible, we all make mistakes, um, and the teachings are are good. You know, the teachings are powerful, and I had not expected, after a number of scandals, to come back, but there's something so enduring um, about the wisdom of the teachings that the human behavior didn't, ultimately didn't stay with me. There's a school of therapy, I don't know if you've heard of it, called Internal Family Systems. No. Um, started by a wonderful therapist named Richard Schwartz. And one of the things he postulates, and this has helped me understand it, is that we all have parts. So rather than the Freudian model of the psyche being like an onion with layers, he speaks of sort of. Um, a homey image of a glow of garlic. So we all have different parts. And I like to think, well, you know, there are some parts of us that are needy, that are hurt, that need to control others. And there are other parts that aren't like that. And there's a saying, again, that's helped me, which is I'm not perfect, but there are parts of me that are excellent. <laughs> So I've tried to stay with, and you know, I'm in my early 60s now, and this has been a 50-year journey. I've tried to stay with what is excellent about teachers. And I've also been very careful to find teachers who have high ethical
0: standards,
1: like Jack Kornfield, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein.
0: Yes, many of them are my teachers. Um, I, I Just on the subject of Doubt in the practice as a consequence of people who have been practicing for years acting like complete idiots. Mm -hmm. Um, I I noticed this week, just for a variety of reasons, I I was unable to do the amount of practice I normally do because things got busy for me. And I don't know if there's a causal relationship between what happened next, which is a few things happened at work (laughs) at one of my two jobs that were stressful Mm -hmm. and I started. I, I was having like a twenty-four to forty-eight hour period of feeling yeah. really anxious. It was mm-hmm. just sort of off. And I s- sat yesterday for a good forty minutes,
3: mm-hmm. and
0: I felt better. Yeah, and I was like, "Oh yeah, this thing that I'm telling everybody they should do, it actually works. It actually it really works. does. It's yeah. not like magic. It was just where sort I of like I kind of metabolized the anxiety. Mm-hmm. Didn't the issues weren't magically solved. It's more just like I wasn't feeling as racy." Uh, as I was going into the session,
1: exactly, and that I think is the beauty of the practice—that you can always start again, even if you've gone off track, even if you haven't meditated, even if you've had a hard day—you can always come back, and that's that's what keeps us going. It's like, okay, hard day, no problem. Now let me start again.
0: Now, in your work as a as a, Psychiatrist, psychotherapist. Psychologist. psychologist. You worked with, as you said before, people who've been traumatized in spiritual communities. Did you work with sort of more garden variety uh, patients as well?
1: Oh, totally garden variety. So um, I started with the classical training, which was sort of psychodynamic, psychoanalytic, and then I learned a lot of the newer therapies. And then one of the things I've been doing since the mid-1980s, is trying to bring meditation into psychotherapy.
0: Well, that's where I was going with this. So tell me about that. Does that work? Because what, I've had and uh, our mutual friend on the show, Dr. Mark Epstein, several mm-hmm. times. He's written a bunch of books, mm-hmm. beautiful books, about the overlap between psychology mm-hmm. and Buddhism. But he actually does not usually bring meditation into the therapy room. And, exactly. he, in fact, his last book was all about his reticence – yeah. do so. You, however, actually do do it. And mm-hmm. so I'm just interested, are these two great tastes that taste great together or is it? are there conflicts? How does it go? Well,
1: you know, again, some people like these two great tastes together, sort of like pretzels and salt. And other people go, nope, nope, not for me. I just want to talk. So I like to see what people need. But the This is an interesting story. So because I'd had, when I started graduate school in psychology, at that point, you know, 30, almost 30 years, 25, 30 years of meditation experience, I was sitting with a person and they were depressed or anxious and whatever I did was wrong. So, you know, you sometimes have those experiences where not only do you feel like an absolute idiot, but the person lets you know that indeed you are an absolute idiot.
0: Yeah, this happens every time I'm with my son. Yeah. Four. Exactly. Tells me all the time.
1: Well, and you know, that's wait till, you, <laughs> wait till he's an adolescent. <laughs> so, I was sitting with this person and whatever I did was wrong, whatever I said was wrong. And then I thought, okay, let me take a breath here. What would help? And then I thought, okay, when I'm feeling like this, I turn to this practice of breathing, for example, or just settling or grounding. Let me see if I can try this with my patient. And I tried it, and it worked and helped, and it shifted the conversation. So the person was sort of less combative with me, and we were able to work. And I thought, oh, what if... I can use these practices that I've been collecting over decades in my meditation practice. Um, And it was almost like I was taking notes as I sat with different teachers, and it felt like there was something precious about the practices they were imparting. But, you know, I'm, I'm careful. I didn't want to do anything unethical. So I asked one of my supervisors, can I talk to you? about bringing, at this point we called it meditation, we didn't call it mindfulness. Can I talk to you about bringing meditation into my therapy? And we're going to give you my best, snottiest Harvard accent. okay? (laughs) And she looked at me, basically freezing me with her eyes, and said, Susan, you can do anything you want behind closed doors, but I will not supervise you. And I felt like what I was doing was really somewhat taboo. Um, So again, I got very quiet about what I was doing. And then luckily I met a group of people um, who were very interested in doing similar things. Um, And we started talking and working together and holding conferences and writing books. and the first book that came out was a very solid book called Mindfulness and Psychotherapy. It, um, it's now in its second edition. And then with some other colleagues, I really wrote a guide to bringing mindfulness into psychotherapy. And that's called Sitting Together. And while ostensibly it's a guide for clinicians, it's really something that anyone can use. And it's a compilation of the practices that I've been collecting since I was in elementary school.
0: It seems like there are at least two ways one could combine these two great tastes. Mm -hmm. One is if you've got a shrink who's willing to teach you how to meditate. I don't know how common that is. I think it's increasingly common. The other is to be a person who both goes to therapy and meditates. Um, What about that combination?
1: Well, I've been doing that for decades as well, um, and I I find my own therapy is very helpful in terms of keeping me clear and staying on top of my greed, my hatred, my delusion, my desires. So, I think both combinations are important. Um, I like to work with people, for example, who want to learn. Mindfulness practices, a lot of people don't, but sometimes people come in and say, Oh, I'm really struggling with this issue, or my mother has cancer, or I'm going through a divorce, or my teenage kids are driving me crazy. What can I do? And often I like to teach them equanimity practice, or maybe some loving kindness if they're very angry with someone, or just basic concentration. So part of it is knowing what practice fits the person and how to tailor it. And often it's trial and error because the research is really new. So sometimes I'll try a practice and someone will say, oh, thanks. You know, that was really good. And other times people say, yeah, didn't work for me. So what I've been trying to do when I have um, a lot of this in the new book is come up with short practices that are accessible to everyone. So what can you do in three to five minutes when you're having a hard day, when you're sleep deprived, when you just had a fight with the boss or a fight with your kid or a fight with your partner? What can help you get back on track?
0: Well, let's, let's dive into that. So tell, tell, tell us about the new book.
1: So um, this book is called Self-Compassion for Parents, and it's Nurture Your Child by Caring for Yourself. And um, I don't think you've had any self-compassion people on the podcast, have you?
0: Uh, We have, but it hasn't posted yet. So Kristen Neff, who is the sort of grandmother, although she's too young to be a grandmother, uh, grandma of self-compassion research. Yep. Uh, at the University of Texas, uh, was in here recently and uh, maybe will have posted by the time your interview posts.
1: Okay, fabulous. So Kristen has done extraordinary research, and this book really builds on the work of Kristen and Chris Germer. And together they've put together this eight-week program, Unmindful
0: Self-Compassion. Yes, yeah, uh, Chris Germer's at Harvard.
1: Yeah, so we're we're good friends.
0: You know, just let me, before we dive in, yeah. I was having a conversation with Joseph Goldstein before my, my meditation teacher. He and I were talking about the fact that we need a better term yep. than self-compassion. It feels like vaguely auto-erotic or <laughs> – um, he didn't say that. I say it <laughs> – um, or, or just maybe a little schmoopy, a little ooey-gooey. Yeah. What, is, what, what can we call this?
1: I'm um, I'm with you. So a lot of people don't like it. Dan Siegel, I don't know if you've had yes. him on the show uh, yet. Doesn't he, like it. Either. He's also
0: been on, but hasn't. We haven't posted it, so you're okay. identifying a lot of the.
1: Um, he likes to use the word inner compassion. That's a little ooey gooey, you know. You're gonna laugh, but one thing I think is helpful is talking about being ten percent kinder.
0: Yeah, you know, to yourself,
1: to yourself, and languaging is so important. A lot of people don't like the word compassion. They misunderstand it. And Kristen tells a funny story where she was interviewed by the Times uh, about her new pro- program on self-compassion. And one of the comments was, oh, great, just what we need, um, a nation of wimps. So people misunderstand it. So I agree with you. It has bad PR.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's really just like not being a jerk to yourself. Yeah. Not beating yourself up. Not beating yourself up in a way that, by the way, makes you not only less happy, but also less effective, less available. Exactly. I Uh, I have to use the term going easy with the internal cattle prod. It's not very catchy.
1: Well, or just telling that inner critic to chill out.
0: Yes. 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 It's taming the inner critic.
1: Yeah. That's a good way to... Put um, it. Sometimes I like because a lot of clients, as you can imagine, don't like the term, find it ooey gooey. And I say, well, can you tell that inner critic to kind of take a break, chill out, go on vacation? The other way to think of it is maybe putting some daylight between you and the inner critic who's saying, "Oh, damn, you're such an idiot. You're so stupid. You really screwed that up."
0: I'm working on this book about kindness, as you know, and uh, there's a chapter in there about self-compassion or whatever it is we're going to call it. But I was thinking about calling the chapter Me, A Love Story. (laughs) I just can't find any other way to make fun of the thing. I mean, it's really powerful, and it is, I think, the prereq Mm -hmm. for actual, like, outward-facing compassion. Mm -hmm. Sustainable outward-facing compassion. Um, But... It just that the, if you if you go in loaded for bear with the uh, self compassion, some people can't hear it.
1: Exactly. So you use words that people can hear.
0: Yes, that's my that's my. I have no original ideas. I just none of us Relanguage things mostly using the f bomb a lot.
1: Yeah. Can I tell you a, f- a good story yeah. that I use as a guide? Um, and in some ways, this has been told as a, a Dharma story. I've heard it um, in meditation circles. So turns out, and this may be apocryphal, I don't know, but supposedly um, many years ago when the Brits colonized India, they wanted to keep their golf courses because they loved playing golf. But the problem was the monkeys. And they didn't know what to do about the monkeys. The monkeys in
0: India—they will mug you. They will, yeah, Yeah.
1: they will climb all over you. So they got together and said, "Okay, what are we going to do about these monkeys? It's making it hard to play golf." So one person said, "Okay, I have an idea. Let's build a fence." So they built a fence or wall um, around the course, and the the monkeys climbed over the (laughs) wall. So it's like, okay, this isn't working. What else do we do? And then someone else said, okay, I have an idea. Let's cart up all the monkeys and bring them to another forest. So they gathered the monkeys, they carted them up, they drove them away. Guess what? The monkeys came back. And then finally they said, okay, what are we going to do? We really want to play golf. And someone said, I have a good idea. Let's play the ball where the monkey drops it. So I've used that as a metaphor like okay how can I be in the moment see where things are see what's happening rather than the way I want things to be
0: but I was thinking you were going to say they just decided to feed the monkeys so they left them alone that would have been the compassionate way to
1: Well bring. I love that That's not how I heard the story but <laughs> that's what we call a reframe of let's you know feed the monkeys but the other way to think about it is the monkeys also want to play.
0: Yeah, right, right, right. You
1: know, right. so it could be let's feed the monkeys, let's change the rules, let's let the monkeys play and not be so uptight about
0: it. An allegor- uh, it's an, an analogous story I heard from a teacher named, I think his name is Matthew Danielle. Oh,
1: yeah. Is that yeah, his yeah. name?
0: I was on a retreat years ago. He's nine, great. Eight yeah. or nine years ago and heard him talk, and I don't know him, and he was telling a story. If uh, I hope Matthew, if you're listening, I hope I'm getting this right. That he was, he had a special tent he set up in the backyard to meditate and did not want to be bothered. But they had cats mm-hmm. who were clawing at the tent, yep. driving him crazy, like crawling underneath and really trying to get in. Mm-hmm. And and he fought it and fought it and fought. And finally, he just let the cats in. And yep. what happened when he let the cats in was they curled up in the corner,
1: right, and maybe fell asleep. And in many ways, that's a variation on a classic Buddhist tale, and you've probably heard the story, where um, there's a Buddhist master and he's trying to meditate. And, you know, demons or monsters come into the cave and he tries to get them out and shoots them away and yells at them, hits them. And finally he says, this isn't working. What would happen if I invite them to tea? So that's very much like your story of feeding them. And that's also a good metaphor for um, our inner experience. Like, rather than yelling at ourselves, what would happen if we extend a little kindness toward ourselves? And the metaphor that, the image that Kristen Neff uses is, what would you say to your best friend who's having a similar situation? Would you say, oh, you are so stupid. You idiot keep screwing up your life what is wrong with you no you'd say oh i understand that's really hard and christian has Kristen and chris grimmer have this practice that i love which works for just about everyone in a difficult situation you don't need to be a parent it could be any difficult situation in life called a self-compassion break and it's basically three steps It's first step is sort of mindfulness, acknowledging that this is hard. The word, the language she uses, this is a moment of suffering. A lot of the people I work with don't like the word suffering. So again, use a word that works. Like, this is a tough moment. This hurts. You know, this is uncomfortable. And then the second point is really acknowledging what's happening Like and acknowledging what Christian would call common humanity. Yeah, you know, this is the human condition. I'm not alone in having a difficult um, job right now or having a boss who doesn't treat me well or having a partner who doesn't understand me. So, yeah, I'm not alone with this. And often just feeling like there are a million other people right now are in a very similar situation makes you feel like yeah this is life and then the third point is you know may i be kind to myself and sometimes people like what we call soothing touch which is putting a hand on the heart or hand on the heart and belly boy but a lot of people don't like that and go (laughs) oh no and i've had people in classes who go no i'm not doing that Or I'm not doing this. Or I'm not doing that.
0: She's hugging herself.
1: Or hands crossed. Or just, you know. Touching your face. Yeah. It's like, no, I'm not going to do that. So, again, you find out what works. You find out, where has the monkey dropped the ball? What do I need right now? So, rather than saying, may I be kind to myself, you can just say, okay, you know, what is it that I need right now? Or, what would help right now? So again, you make the question work for you because a lot of people don't like ooey-gooey.
0: Yeah, you're talking to one of them. I know. It's No problem. Another phrase that my friend Jeff Warren, who's a meditation teacher in Canada, I, I wrote a book with him and he, he... And he's been on the podcast. Yeah, many right? times. He's a, he's a, he's a regular. Um, he's also on the app a lot too. He uses the phrase, it's okay. Yeah. I, I, that's hard to argue with.
1: Yeah. And other teachers just say, this is it. This is the way things are. Narayan, who you just, who was listening to um, recently, who, Narayan Liebenson, who I've studied with for about 20 years, um, will often have people say, okay, just be with this, just this, nothing more, just this. This is the way things are. But that's more
0: mindfulness than self-compassion, right? So just the, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, which so I, um, I'm compared to you, especially a newbie in meditation, mm-hmm. but I think of just this as a little phrase that would tune you into whatever's happening right now, mm-hmm. which is a mindfulness mm-hmm. t- exercise. But we're talking about self-compassion. So in self-compassion, it's often about sending phrases of caring. Yeah, right? So isn't that different than you know, may I be? Well, from suffering. what I like
1: to think of is mindfulness as the foundation of compassion. And that's an analogy that Jon Kabat-Zinn uses. Like mindfulness is the foundation of the house. And then we build on that. So if there isn't some awareness, it's really hard to add any um, compassion. Like, yeah, okay. This is hard, you know. And let me be with it. You can add some warmth to that or this is the way it is some people again it's nothing works for everyone everyone has a different way of taking it in so i've had some people who get angry with the okay this is this is okay because they'll go no it's not okay so again it's finding the words that speak to you
0: what about you've got this
1: some people like you've got this. I That tends to be one that I like. But other people say, no, I don't have it. My life is falling apart. Mm. How dare you tell me I have this? Mm. You know, my world is hell. So one of the things that is helpful is asking people, what do you need to hear? Mm-hmm. What are the words that really make you feel grounded and centered, that comfort you? You know, that could be, the equivalent, you don't have to do this, of putting your hand on your heart or your friend saying, you're a good man.
0: You know? Yeah, I mean, it could be one of the classic, and these are these are a little ooey-gooey, but it could be one of the classic my uh, loving-kindness phrases of, you know, may I be free from suffering. Yeah. Because that acknowledges that you are suffering. But again, that, it's problematic because some people don't like the word suffering, and may I be from, free from suffering sounds like... A little bit like a bizarro world hallmark card. So um, I can see why people wouldn't like that either. But yeah, I think the bottom line is come up with the phraseology that works for you.
1: And that's one of the things I love about the mindful self compassion course that Chris and Kristen have put together, and I'm one of the teachers, is there's a chance to rather than use the rote loving kindness phrases, you know, maybe free from danger, may have mental happiness, may have physical happiness. you know, may I love myself completely, as people go yuck, 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 you come up with the phrases that really speak to you. Which is different than the traditional rote classical phrases, which are wonderful, but again, don't work for everyone. So I like to try to make it really accessible, just as I like the practices to be accessible.
0: So that's one of the practices in the book, which is if you're having a bad moment, Mm-hmm. In, in in the context of your book, it's a bad moment with your kid, but if you're having a bad moment in any context for any human being, kidless or a parent, yeah, you can do these three steps of first uh, just noticing that something sucks right now, or this is a moment of suffering, however. Yeah. You w- Two is to realize, like, everybody has bad days, no matter how golden your life may appear on the outside. Right. And three, is, which, again, the connect, aerates your own stress because you're connecting it to the fact that you're part of a uh, homo sapiens and we all suffer.
1: And you don't feel so victimized.
0: Right. Or alone, at yep. least. Uh, and the third is to give yourself some sort of sucker, you know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. whether it's if you're up for it, give yourself a hug or – Mm-hmm. Uh, put your hand on your heart, or your hand on your face, or if you're like me and you're you know emotionally uh, unavailable and stingy, you can say something like "It's okay," yeah. or "This sucks," yeah. But you're you you can handle it. That kind of thing. That's the first. So just recapping where we are. That's the first practice mm-hmm. uh, that we're talking about from your book. What are the other practices in your book?
1: Um, well, the book is full of it, and let me just add one more thing on sure. it. One. One other thing I like, and you can tell I've worked on variations for years, is just saying to yourself, I'm listening. I'm here for you. I have your back. I hear you.
0: Doesn't that feel a little schizophrenic? <laughs> who's the, who, who are you talking to if you're talking to yourself? Who's doing the talking and who's listening?
1: Well, you know, again, we can think of that model of parts, but you can reach out to perhaps the part of you that feels anxious or worried, um, and just say, look, I'm here for
0: you. It's interesting you say this because I've been working with – there's another recent guest on the show named Jerry Colonna, who's a sort of celebrated corporate coach in mm-hmm. the um, tech world mostly. And Jerry's been working with me and some other folks at the 10% Happier Company, and uh, he's also a practicing Buddhist. Um, very interesting guy. And he talks about sort of identifying your various inner hob- hobgoblins and, yeah. you know, giving them names, mm-hmm. which is not – he's not the only person who does yeah. this. Uh, Jeff Warren, the aforementioned Jeff Warren does this too.
1: And Sharon Salzberg yeah. does that. Yes,
0: yeah. Sharon Salzberg talks about naming your inner critic. Uh, in fact, she has a uh, meditation on the 10% Happier app that's all mm-hmm. about that. And, and you know, Jerry's argument – and he, again, he's not alone in this, but I he's in my head because I talk to him a lot – is, you know, hug the hobgoblin, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, when in my case, uh, my stern, dismissive, stubborn, mm-hmm. nasty voice, both internally directed and externally directed is Robert Johnson, my grandfather, mm-hmm. uh, who, who uh, ha- raised his family not far from where you grew up mm-hmm. um, on the north shore of Massachusetts. It's like, all right, Robert, stand down. Yeah. Or like the war's over. Yeah. Uh, you know, you don't I-, I see you. I hear you. Here's I five for you. You were doing your job. You're trying to protect me in some warped way. But, mm-hmm. but you don't, we're, we're not, you're not needed right now.
1: Yeah. And that's exactly right because in psychological theory, we think of these parts as protectors. So the more you can say, you know, thank you, Grandpa. You're doing your job. You've done it really well. But, you know, you can get vacation right now. You can chill out. You can stand back. And often just creating that space feels like, oh, thank God. And one of the techniques that they teach is to really acknowledge these difficult protector parts and say, yeah, thank you. You've been trying to help me and protect me, so don't screw up. I see that. Thanks. And then suddenly it's a little easier.
0: One area where it's useful for me is that I have a lot of shame around Mm -hmm. the protector parts, or in particular Robert Johnson, because I've done some of my dumbest, meanest stuff when he's taken over the show. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I feel very guilty, defensive, shameful about that. And Jerry's reframing is, look, he was trying to meet some need for you, or you were trying to meet some need when you're in this mode, yeah, some ancient primordial child, you know, five-year-old need of mm-hmm. he boils it down. You know, we, in psychological circles, you'll know this better than I do. There's Maslow's hierarchy yep. of needs, love, safety, and belonging. Mm-hmm. You could whittle it down to in the five-year-old mind, and so if you, th- I've found it very useful to think, oh, Robert's just trying to keep me safe, exactly in his in his again, sort of warped way Mm -hmm. uh, of keeping me safe but it's his methods are no longer useful
1: exactly and
0: uh, so seeing them come up don't feel guilty that i'm a you know i feel tempted to say some horrible thing that doesn't i don't necessarily shame is not so useful right there it's more like turning actually the jujitsu move is like high-fiving it like i see what you're trying to do yeah i appreciate it exactly the impulse is good on some level but it's not useful now
1: right and maybe you helped when I was five, yeah. but, you know, I don't need you anymore. Right. And sometimes it's useful. Another technique that I like is asking this part, how old do you think I am? <laughs> and sometimes the part will say, well, you're five. And it's like, well, actually, I'm not five anymore. You know, you're outdated. So I find that, a, you know, a really good Tai Chi move.
0: It's uh, – this phrase has been going through my head recently when it, as it pertains to this touchy stuff, mm-hmm. touchy-feely stuff, mm-hmm. which is that it's mildly annoying but deeply useful. Exactly. And if you can get past – I'm talking to myself here. Yeah. If you can get past the mildly annoying stuff, you get to deeply useful stuff. Mm-hmm. And that is, again, for for anti-sentimentalists such as myself, mm-hmm. that's just yeah. – you're going to have to do it. Yeah. Or be unhappy.
1: Or relanguage it so it's not as annoying. Yes. And just going back to shame, because that's too good a point to drop. Okay. Um, one of the great things about the self-compassion program is it's specifically oriented to working with shame, at least in the, the latter sections. And shame is notoriously hard to work with, because we shut down. It's so powerful. And um, this is a way to work effectively with shame. And again... The way of dealing with it is to look at these parts that feel so shamed, often listen to the story they have to tell about the shame. And I'm just guessing here, it may be, you know, when you were five, something happened and you were shamed. And you're being very careful not to do that
0: again. Hmm. Yes, (laughs) that's probably true. That's probably true. You know, and often probably many things happen that I'm being careful not to have Yeah.
1: And shame is a very social emotion. So generally we're shamed in a public context, and we're shamed because we're not behaving appropriately. And the fear is that we'll somehow, you know, be cast off the island or we'll be exiled. And that's the last thing we want. We don't want to be excluded. So that's why it's so powerful. That's why it really has its claws in it.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's really interesting because this idea of being cast off the island, this is not theoretical. We, in evolution, a lonely human was probably a dead human.
1: Exactly. You couldn't survive.
0: Right. Without society. This isn't just about, like, needing needing to be popular. This is actually, like, you need – if your loneliness kills people, not only – uh, because, you know, if you're in an ancient society, then you're gonna be eaten by
4: uh, Wild animals. Yes,
0: wild animals are the opposite tribe or the yeah. opposing tribe. But it actually the psycho psychological and physiological ramifications of loneliness are quite severe. So shame, those those tendrils it has in us are are really
1: deep. Well, they're wired so deeply, it's really hard to get at them. Which is why you sort of have to develop Your mindfulness and compassion muscles just as we train at the gym to get stronger. And then once there's a foundation of some mindfulness and loving kindness, compassion, then it's easier to look at the tough stuff. But it's usually wired so deeply and we're so protective
0: that it's hard to get at it. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham. Tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deep D. Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deep D. Kapoor is a a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice. It takes you into the uh, Underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500, 500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500, 500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. whole wheat, pita pockets, and more. I am constantly consuming these 365 products, including the the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, We love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. So let's talk about other stuff in the book.
1: Sure. I was wondering, and tell me if you, um, if this would be helpful, do you want to talk about a situation as a parent that was tough for you sure. with Alexander? Speaking
0: of shame, um, yeah, I'll, I'll give you something from yesterday. Okay, great. Uh, he was throwing a... F-
1: and how old is he now? He's four. four. Okay.
0: Florid temper tantrum um, last night. He It was directed at his mother. Mm-hmm. I was around. Mm-hmm. But he was just going on and on. It was just going on and on. And he was just the histrionics, the theatricality of it mm-hmm. was driving me nuts. Mm-hmm. And I found myself kind of laughing a little bit because, mm-hmm. but that was like covering up mm-hmm. for the fact that I really wanted to kill him. Yeah. Um, and I realized like, this is not a good look. Mm-hmm you know where why why can't my wife was being so patient with him mm-hmm. and so loving with him mm-hmm. and i was thinking i don't know if i could do that if yeah. I, if, if it was me in that position cuz he doesn't really throw these big temper tantrums directed at me I've, we've had a few mm-hmm. but mostly he really there's something about her that he directs a lot of this stuff at when he's with me it's a little bit more relaxed i don't mm-hmm. and then that that is that is not i'm not I'm not complimenting myself mm-hmm. by saying that it's just the part of the dynamic,
3: mm-hmm. and he spends
0: much more time with her. Anyway, the shame was I wanted to kill him. I didn't have a lot of sympathy or patience for him in that moment, and found myself kind of chuckling at how ridiculous he was being, mm-hmm. and that didn't feel right.
1: Okay, and then it passed. He yeah, it totally. Calmed passed. down. He okay. calmed down,
0: and then we were in bed reading bedtime stories. Me, him, the cat, and mommy. So it was, mm-hmm. it was all fine. There was nothing. There were no bad ramifications. But internally, I felt a little like maybe that's Robert Johnson. You know, that's maybe my grandfather showing up there.
1: Well, and maybe it's human. So two points. <laughs> One is um, in the book, there's a practice for tantrums, especially in tantrums in the grocery stores when your kid melts down. But it sounds like your wife got him under control. What was painful for you was that you had some aggression coming up. Yes. So first a story, then a practice. So one of my mentors, when I had my first child, said to me something that I thought was incredibly aggressive. And he said, you know, right now, everything's lovely. You know, you're sleep-deprived, but you're blissed out, beautiful baby. Mark my words, as things will get, as he gets older, you will have a moment where you want to kill him. And I thought, like, how dare you say this? It's sort of like the witch at the, you know, baby's birth party, you know, giving you charcoal and giving you a curse. Like, how dare you tell me I'm going to want to murder my child? But he was absolutely right. And he was, he was a Freudian, so he was very in touch with aggression. And then I felt less guilty when I really did experience what the psychoanalysts called murderous rage. And it was like, oh, yeah, that's what he was telling me. You know, we all get really angry with
0: our kids. I feel less guilty as you talk. I didn't know this was an established thing in Freudian psychology. Yeah. I feel like I started to think I was uniquely defective.
1: No. All the analysts will talk about murderous rage and— um, Winnicott, who Mark Epstein loves as well. D.S. Winnicott. Yeah. yeah. Um, D.W. D.W. I don't know. Yeah.
0: Famous psychologist. Donald theory. Winnicott.
1: Um, talks about it. But let me give you a mindfulness and compassion practice okay. that helps the next time you want to murder your son. <laughs> okay? And this is. Um,
0: can we call it murderous rage practice?
1: We can call it murderous rage practice. <laughs> That's a pretty good name. <laughs> in fact, I can even add that to my psychology today block. I like it. Okay, so let me guide you through this. And okay. again, this doesn't just oh, we're going to do it now. Okay, we're gonna you're do not right just going to
0: describe it. We're going to no, do no. it. No, okay. no, and
1: we're going to do it in about two minutes. But let me just say for those people who are listening who aren't parents, you don't need to do this as a parent. There are times when we have murderous rage for our partners, for our coworkers, or While driving – Oh, you bet. And Boston drivers are notoriously terrible. Okay, so let's say someone cuts you off. So just sit comfortably, take a deep breath, and just let yourself ground. Coming into the present moment. And just, if you'd like, anchor with your breath or the sensations of your body. just notice what you're feeling just bringing some mindfulness and then tune in ask yourself where in your body you're feeling this murderous rage it might be in your belly it might be in your jaw it might be in your chest just tell me where you're noticing it Or where you were noticing it last night.
0: I feel no murderous rage toward you. That's good. Probably like a sucking chest wound, like you've been shot right in, the like, two inches north of your solar plexus. Yeah,
1: okay. So, I'm not going to suggest you put your hand there, because I know that would be ooey-gooey.
0: I'll do it for you. Okay. I like you.
1: All right. So, if you like, just put a hand there. And then just say to yourself, ah this is what murderous rage feels like. Okay, let me pay attention to this. And just let it rise and let it fall. So as we're talking about a few minutes ago, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. One really interesting psychologist named Alan Marlott had this practice which he called surfing. An urge surfing. So just notice it rise. Notice it fall. And the research is that no feeling lasts more than 30 seconds. So just say okay, this is what it feels like. Let it rise. Let it fall. And then if you like, just coming back to center. One technique I find very helpful is coming back to the sensations in your body. Luckily, the body doesn't ruminate. The body is always in the present moment. And then just check in. How how are you feeling? Just tell me what you're feeling.
0: Uh, I was able to visualize my son howling. And so I, got, I started to feel some of the anger. Mm-hmm. So I uh, the, the feeling in my chest came back. That seems to be like the place where it all registers. Mm-hmm. But I now feel more interested and curious in it rather than owned by it. Great.
1: And one other... I, I like sort of little mantras that help get us through the day. And another one I find helpful if we start going back there again is just to say, okay, that was then. This is now. It's not happening now. Yes. I don't have to go back there. you know. And if it's not happening now, it's not happening. So we realize how caught we get in those experiences of shame from the past, and how we just keep spinning and spinning and spinning. And one of the great things about mindfulness and compassion is it can break that cycle. Like, oh, okay, no tantrum right now. I'm not a bad dad. I'm not a bad dog. Everyone gets angry. It's okay.
0: But this practice seems to involve or require a certain amount of space and silence and stillness. But what if you're mid-temper tantrum? What do you do then? Am I supposed to put my hand on my chest in the middle of the supermarket?
1: Well, practice is here. In fact, if you want to have she's, a – She's
0: got her hand on her yeah. book. she's saying that. Yeah. In
1: fact, if you want to do a link to the practice, it helps. One of the things we teach
0: – We can put those in the show notes. Okay, yeah. great.
1: One of the things we teach in the Mindful Self-Compassion course is something called Soothing Touch. And I know this may sound ooey-gooey to you, but it may be worth teaching to Alexander. And you can do it with a stuffed animal first. Like, okay, so what's his favorite animal, teddy bear or something?
0: Snuggle puppy.
1: Okay, so snuggle puppy. So when snuggle puppy is really upset and angry, where would he like to be hugged? What does snuggle puppy need? So you may experiment with him. He says, oh, Snuggle Puppy, you know, likes a hand right on his chest. Okay, let's do that. So you have a little prep work, and then you're at the grocery store, and let's say he wants a candy bar. And you go, no Alexander, no sugar, we're not, you know, no candy bar. I want a candy bar. I want a candy bar. And he's starting to tantrum. People come over. Someone pulls out their phone think, oh my God, you know, am I gonna be, you know you know, ridiculed online for not being a good enough dad? Everyone is ten
0: percent happier is losing his is losing stuff and losing aisle
1: it four, yeah. enough for <laughs> help, what do I do? And one of the things you can do is say, Okay Alexander, now where would Snuggle Puppy need a t- soothing touch right now? And he may it may take him a while to come down. you may say okay this is frustrating I'm with you I know you want that candy bar hang in there and you know try to move the candy bars back in case he's pulled a you know a package down I'm with you and know that the tantrum will pass and the more he can begin to have some skills about learning to calm down himself the better it will be and then my joke is get out of there And, you know, take care of yourself because it's hard for you. You know, so I don't know what um, would be useful for you. Some people say, okay, I need a drink. I need some wine. I need a double martini. You may say, okay, I just need to take a walk here. That was really stressful. And I just hope I'm not going to be flamed online for not being able to handle my kid's tantrum. Yeah. Yeah, Because that's a moment of shame. Yes. Yes. So again, how can you recover? This is a moment of distress. Every parent has had a kid with a tantrum at many points in their lives. And I don't want to tell you this, but sometimes the tantrums continue as they get older. They don't necessarily stop. Um, And how can I take care of myself for the moment? And taking care of yourself, people misunderstand this as well. It doesn't mean putting yourself first or saying, okay, um, I need a spa treatment, you know, I need to have a bubble bath, I need me time, I need to go have a facial or whatever. It's just like, okay, how can I include myself in this circle of care? You know, I take care of my kid, I take care of my coworkers, um, I take care of my wife, but what do I need? Because your needs count. So just generally, simply including yourself in that circle of care. So it's not ooey-gooey, but it's just like, all right, I matter. And there's a saying from the Buddha I like, and you probably know this as well, that you can search all over the world and not find anyone more deserving, and I'm using normal language here, of care than you. His wording is, or the wording we're taught is compassion. Just like yeah, okay, this was tough. Being a parent is tough. Being a boss is tough. Mm-hmm. Being an anchor is tough.
0: Not that tough, I promise you. <laughs> um, one of the things that you've you were saying to me before we started rolling was that these little practices, yeah, these kind of I call them. I call them free-range mindfulness practices or free-range self-compassion. Or
1: I call them stealth practices.
0: Stealth practices, that's good too. On-the-go practices can be just as impactful as more prolonged formal practices. And you say there's some you new think, research out on this? Yeah,
1: okay. So excuse me because I'm a research geek, mm-hmm. but Judd Brewer, who you've had um, on your program. Yeah, he's a friend. Yeah, he's a terrific guy. Has this, um, and I can give this to you if you want to put it on online, um, what he was finding, this just came out. um, And ostensibly, it's about um, the title of the article is Mindfulness Training for Smoking Cessation, Moderation of the Relationship Between Craving and Cigarette Use. Yes, he's been
0: studying this for a while.
1: So putting it in English rather than journalese, what he was finding in this article is that those little moments of mindfulness, the stealth mindfulness, have a bigger impact than we thought. So those moments where you will do, you know, mindfulness of washing dishes or mindfulness of changing diapers, which I have in, in the book, or the RAIN practice, or mindful walking. Those... Maybe we
0: should just define RAIN for a second.
1: Okay, so that is a practice that was popularized by the meditation teacher Michelle McDonald. So that's R, recognizing, A, acknowledging, I, investigating, and then responding and neutrally, like not taking it personally.
0: Right, non-identification.
1: Non-identification with it. And um, another way of doing it is, you know, this is going to feel icky-gooey, but responding with some nourishment or nourishing. So those are practices you can do on the go walking, you can do driving. I mean keep your eyes open, of course. But just acknowledging, recognizing, and that will help it pass. So what was what Judd was finding was that these practices, these on the go practices, I'd like to call it compassion to go, like our, you know, coffee to go, make a difference. But the research is still new. We don't know how much of a difference it's gonna make. But so far it's trending. It's going the right direction.
0: Are there other practices in um, in the book that you think we should dive into a little bit now?
1: Um, there's so many. I mean, there's <laughs> there's about fifty practices. So I'd like to focus on need. So maybe think about practices that you or your colleagues might need on a daily basis or other parents. burnout. Burnout. Okay. So um. One of the things I really like, there are a few practices I really like for burnout. Compassion practices help and also the equanimity practices help. Um, And one of the practices that I, well, there's two. I'm going to give you two options and you tell me what you're most interested in. One is called, this again be be a little gooey for you, um, the tree of compassionate beings. So you imagine... And you can do a link to this as well. You imagine that you're surrounded by people in your life who really care about you. Um, And it's nurturing. You feel much less burnt out. You feel like you have the proverbial village. That's one. The other practice is one that the Dalai Lama taught to thousands of people at Harvard many years ago. And these were people who had no meditation experience. So this may be really good for your listeners. And um, I've simplified it and called it um, a still place in a stormy sea. Um, and basically, it's dropping down underneath the waves and the stress of life to find a place that's still and calm and nourishing. Do you want me to do that? Sure. I can do it in about three minutes. Well, great. I mean, again, some of these practices it's better if you have forty-five. Most people don't have 45 minutes. So I try to go for what can you do in three to five minutes that's going to make a difference. Okay, so just sit comfortably. And this is a bit of a visualization. Um, Not all meditation practices are visualization. Some people like it, some don't. See how it works for you. Just start grounding. Feel your feet on the ground. Take a few breaths. Just knowing that you're here right now. Feeling the sensations of your body. Letting yourself be present. And then start by getting an image of a a beautiful harbor. And there's a boat in the harbor. Sky is blue, water's calm, great cumulus clouds. And then suddenly the wind shifts. And you feel a storm coming on. And you're watching the water, the calm harbors, suddenly full of white caps wind is strong, there's thunder, there's lightning, there's hail, it's a real storm. And you're looking at this boat in the harbor, maybe even imagining that you're in this boat in the harbor, being lashed by the winds and the waves, blown about. And then you imagine, perhaps putting on scuba gear if you like, that you can drop below the winds, below the waves, dropping to where the anchor is. And feeling like the waves and the wind and the storm is above you. You're resting in a very quiet place. And in this place, you're feeling held, you're feeling somewhat rejuvenated, you're feeling like you can get a rest. Just let yourself rest here for a moment or so, knowing that the storm will pass. There's nothing you need to do right now. And then just tune into your body, noticing where there might be tension, stress. If you like, basically doing what John Kabat-Zinn calls the body scan, just noticing where in your body you might be holding tension or tightness, and then just letting that go. And when you're ready, no rush, you can stay here a little longer if you like. Find some movement in your arms and legs. And when you're ready, just slowly
0: open your eyes. That actually worked for me.
1: Yeah, it's amazing what a few minutes will do. Yeah. And this is what we call an equanimity practice. And again, being a research geek, one of the things we're finding out is that what we call compassion or empathy fatigue may be that we don't have sufficient equanimity. So if we can combine equanimity, we can really mediate
0: against that burnout. Mm. Let me ask you one last question. Okay. You recently wrote a column about snowplow parenting.
1: In psychology today. Yeah,
0: yeah so can you – what does that mean? What's wrong with it?
1: Okay, so as you probably remember, there was, you know, a big storm about um, the admissions scandal. Still going on. Varsity Still going goes, on, yeah. Yep. Yep. And parents really doing um, everything they could to get kids into schools and often using um, – money, power, manipulation, unethical means, I feel like we're coming full circle now in terms of ethics, to give their kids um, an unfair advantage. And snowplow parents um, will do anything to get rid of obstacles. But the practice is that the obstacles teach us. You know, I know Joseph Goldstein will tell a story of um, pulling up a carrot just to check on the carrot Mm -hmm. to see if it was growing. And other people will say, oh, you know, I um, tried to help the butterfly get out of the chrysalis so it didn't have to struggle. But I think if we can see everything as an opportunity, we can let our kids find their way. We don't need to clear the road of all obstacles, but to realize that everything is workable. Everything can teach us. You know, just because we think it's a problem doesn't mean that there won't be some silver lining to the struggle.
0: Yeah, my experience, and I've had a very privileged life, so it's easy to say this for me, most of the, quote-unquote, disasters have had positive outcomes, ultimately.
1: Exactly.
0: I mean, I had a panic attack on national television. Yeah. It worked out okay, et cetera, et cetera. And
1: it led to this.
0: Yes. Now, granted, I speak from a position of, and I don't want to sound like too much of a college student here, but privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's become a kind of, unfortunately, a loaded word, but it, it, it is what it is. I was raised by, by doctors in newton massachusetts i had a lot of opportunities that a lot of people don't have Mm -hmm. but in my so having said that in my experience the struggles have been what have led to the good stuff
1: Mm -hmm. the really good stuff yeah and there's actually a practice in the mindful self-compassion book and course that looks at those struggles and then has after they're gone has you look at this the silver lining So it's like, oh, okay, what appeared to be a struggle and what appeared to be so difficult was actually useful. So in our efforts to give our kids every advantage, we often make it harder for them and really don't serve them because they're not developing resilience. They're not developing that sense of I can do it, I have it.
0: Uh, Jonathan Haidt, a psychologist at New York University, wrote a book, a controversial book recently. But if I understand his theory, in part it was that we have an epidemic of political correctness on campus. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't agree with that diagnosis, but and I don't know where I stand on it. But his argument is that the political correctness, which is not good for anybody, it's stifling, mm-hmm. free exploration of ideas, et cetera, et cetera. Again, this is him talking. Is the consequence of snowball parenting? It's yeah. snowplow parenting yeah. that we – kids have never run up into friction in their lives and and are therefore un, becoming snowflakes. Yeah. That they're unwilling to and deal melting. with contrary yeah. ideas.
1: Right. And if there's less <clears throat> resilience, you know, you hit a moment of anxiety or depression and you don't know what to do with it. So one of the things I love to do is give people, give parents a toolbox of techniques – and so many of them are practices that you can do in 3 to 5 minutes that help you get back on track.
0: My father once said that the most difficult thing about parenting is letting your kids make their own mistakes. I think that's yeah, quite wise. It's painful. Um before we go, can you just uh can you walk into what we call the plug zone? Can you just plug your book, plug everything you got, social media, other books, where, okay. wherever we can find you.
1: So, a bunch of things. Um With a number of friends, we have an organization called uh, Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy. We've been around for 30 years, a number of books. We do conferences. We do training. We do lecture series. We do film series. We do fun events like, you know, walking meditation. And we stream events. So people can listen or tune in. The website is meditationpsychotherapy.org. With my friends at Harvard Med School, and this is a great story, but I, we don't have time for that now, we started a center to bring mindfulness into primary care, because basically it's been siloed to psychiatry. And we also do research. We teach mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, mindful self-compassion. I know it's alphabet soup, and also have lots of workshops. But if people want to follow the research or follow us, the initials are CHA, which stands for Cambridge Health Alliance CMC, which is Center for Mindfulness and Compassion. So that's chacmc.org. My blog, which you refer to on psychology today, is called The Art of Now. Um, So people can just Google that. I've been writing that for a few years. There are articles on parents as well as Films as well as art, as well as practices for trauma. So almost every blog post has a practice. And there's also practices for what we call screen apnea. So they're finding that if we spend a lot of time on our phone or email, we stop breathing. 80% of us stop breathing while we're on our screens. And this is just a basic practice to remember to breathe. Mm-hmm. So a lot of very practical practices. Again, three minutes. Um, And then my website is Dr. Susan Pollock.
0: And the new book again?
1: And the new book is Self-Compassion for Parents, Nurture Your Child by Caring for Yourself. And the first book for professionals and others is called Sitting Together. And that has, as both of them do, many of the practices I've been learning since the mid-60s. All
0: right. Well, to be a little cute, sitting together with you was great. So thank you very much.
1: Well, and sitting together with you was great. Thank you for having
0: me. <laughs> Big thanks once again to Susan Pollock. We've got a couple of voicemails for you this week. Here's number one.
4: Hi, Dan. My name is MJ. I'm calling from Augusta, Georgia. Uh, I read your book, and I love your podcast, and I've been using your app for about six months and love it. Uh, my question is about how to introduce children to meditations. So I know your son is much younger than my daughter. My daughter is 11. Uh, but I am, of course, interested in helping her come to this practice way younger than I did so that she can enjoy some of the benefits that I'm already seeing in the short time that I've been doing it. But she's <laughs> my initial attempts uh, have been thwarted. She is not interested. So I'm just curious to hear if there's anything that you're doing with your son to introduce him to meditation or to Buddhism, uh, if that's something you and your wife have discussed, uh, I'd love to hear more about it. Thanks so much for all you do. Bye.
0: MJ, I have good news for you, uh, which is that uh, in his infinite wisdom, one of our ace producers on this show, uh, Samuel Johns, reached out to Susan Pollack to help answer this question. So I'll weigh in, but let me just tell you her response. She She saw... She listened uh, to your question and um, had the following thoughts. First, if you want to introduce mindfulness to kids, her argument is the best way to do it is make make it work for them. It's going to be hard probably to get them to sit with their eyes closed and, and follow their breath. Although some kids may do it, but, but it might be smart, according to Susan, to try to make it more fun. W- one way to do that, she says, is to do a sort of stealth mindfulness wh- where you get the kids to do silly walks. She invokes, if you're old enough to remember Monty Python, uh, they they had a, a, a shtick about the ministry of silly walks. And so you can have them walk backwards or on all fours or walk like a crab and then bring their attention, uh, have the kids bring their attention to their bodies and feel and notice the sensations. Obviously, as as we know as meditators, using the sensations of the body is a great way to get grounded out of your discursive uh, thought loops, and it's a, it's a great object for meditation. And then when you get distracted, you start again. Another practice Susan recommends is go outside, sit on, a, uh, on the grass in the park or on a bench and look up at the star, uh, rather look up at the sky. If it's night, you'll see stars. And then maybe gently mention to your child that the clouds moving through the sky are like the thoughts in our head or the emotions in our, uh, in our minds. And that they're constantly changing, constantly moving. Um, so that's a, that's another technique she recommends. And another is to get kids to listen to sounds and to count them or name them and really pay attention in that way to the world around them. Her final thought, and this is the one I would have said right away, is that given the loaded, freighted nature of parent-child relationships, it might be best to have somebody else teach mindfulness to your kid. because. Kids are wired to reflexively reject a lot of our suggestions. And uh, that's kind of the route I'm taking. Uh, I don't know if that's just a lazy route, but it, it's. I may have said this on the show before, so I'll make it quick. But I, I have this little shtick about the fact that, that you know, I, I do nothing that my parents told me to do. You know, I wasn't allowed to watch TV. And as I like to joke, I now work inside the box. Uh, but I do everything that they modeled. So they were really serious about their careers, really serious about their relationship with one another, very serious about daily exercise. And they never lectured me about any of that stuff. I just saw them do it. It became normalized for me. I said, that's the route I'm going with Alexander. he He's almost five. He knows daddy meditates. He you know he knows I go on meditation retreats. Got a few little tasteful Buddha things around the house. He knows who the Buddha is. But there's no really long lecturing about it, no – uh, no, really, uh, I don't evangelize to him. We have a few children's books that people have sent me that I'll read to him that talk a little bit about the idea of not being owned or carried away by your emotions. But I really don't make it a too big a deal because I don't want to turn him off. I want him to come to it on his own. So that's just my approach. All right, let's do voicemail number two.
2: Hi, Dan. Valerie from Savannah, Georgia. And I have been working with Mindful Meditation for many years now. And I am so happy that your experience and your podcast has helped bring mental health issues into the light. I have listened to Mindful Parenting, but would like to hear more about Mindful Parenting of adult children, especially during this time of the opioid crisis and, in general, just dealing with adult children and bad decision-making, how to still be a parent that cares and still hold on to your mental sanity as your adult children go about their life making their decisions, which are not necessarily always uh, well thought out. So anything about uh, mindful parenting of adult children, would be wonderful. And thank you so much for the work you do and those that work with you. I really enjoy your podcast. Have a wonderful day.
0: Thanks, Valerie. Especially especially thank you for pointing out that there are people who work with me and do most of the work around here. Um, Yeah, this is a great question. Luckily, the brilliant Susan Pollack has provided me with some talking points here. First point she makes is that you know, to, to know whether you, if you've got a grown child, especially if they're in their mid to late twenties, that their brains are still developing, and you know that they can make it highly likely, therefore, that they're going to make all sorts of questionable decisions. So that's just a thing to know. She points out that I think can just provide some useful context here. You know, also to know that as caring sheep says that if you obviously we all care a lot about our kids, but but especially as they get older, we can't make their decisions. For them. And so, uh, you know, I, it brings to mind one of the many wise things I've heard my father say over the years, which is that the hardest part of parenting is letting your kids make their own mistakes. And so, therefore, in some ways, the practice of meditation that you want is to b- boost your own equanimity, your own capacity to be okay in the face of difficult or wrenching stimuli. And so there are little, you know, uh, uh, we talked about, uh, Susan talked about these, you know, loving kindness phrases, little sappy phrases that we can send to ourselves. And You can modify these in any way you want, but she suggested some ones. These are classic phrases like all beings are on their own journey or I care for you, but I can't control your happiness or unhappiness. Or I may wish things to be otherwise, but may I accept this just as it is? So these little phrases, you can modify them to make them you know, less hallmark E if you want. But the idea of training up your own capacity to be as calm as possible in the face of what can be very frustrating situations involving your grown children, I think that is a wise piece of advice on her part. And just so you know, we do have equanimity meditations in the 10% Happier app. And finally, you you mentioned the opioid crisis. Susan points out that if your child is dealing with addiction, there are a number of excellent programs that help people work with addictions. In particular, uh, Susan points out, and I I really am glad she pointed this out, that uh, Dr. Judson Brewer, who's at Brown University, is a former guest on this podcast, I think twice, is doing some great work here. She also mentioned somebody named G. Allen Marlat. Uh, we'll put more about both of these in uh, the show notes. And finally, she also recommends another uh, another uh, another program run by another former guest, Jess Mori. Uh, she's been on the show. She has a program called Inward Bound. It's kind of it's it's a version of Outward Bound, but they 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 go out into the woods with teenagers and they do a lot of meditations. Uh, it, the group is called Inward Bound or I Be Me, and they work with high school and college age children who are struggling or not. Um, because we're all struggling one way or another. Uh, I th- the final thing I'll say, and again, I apologize if I've said this before, but h- hopefully, I think it bears repeating. I hear from parents all the time. You know how 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 do I get my kid to meditate? They're so anxious, and of course, we're in the middle of this, what seems like an epidemic of anxiety and depression and uh, suicide among young people. And I think it's a great idea to get kids to meditate, but. It, as I said before, it's hard for parents to to convince children to do anything <laughs> because they they are uh, so uh, seemingly designed to reject us. So so I th- I think if you want to be if you want mindful kids, I think you really do have to be a mindful parent. And I would rather see you model this stuff rather than you know than uh, uh, exhorting all the time because I, I feel like the success rate for the former strategy is likely to be higher. Thanks again to Susan Pollock for helping me answer these questions with way more uh, wisdom than I would have otherwise mustered. Since I'm thanking people, I also want to thank the uh, podcast insiders, all of you extremely loyal, hundreds of extremely loyal listeners who give us uh, weekly feedback that is insanely useful. Really appreciate that. You want to sign up to be a podcast insider? I believe there there will be a link to that in the show notes. And uh, I want to thank everybody uh, who works really hard to make the show a reality. Ryan Kessler, Samuel Johns, Grace Livingston, Brittany's working the audio board today. She's a little sad and tired because she stayed up late to watch her New York Yankees lose to the Houston Astros last night. But uh, she's in she's a good sport. Also, uh, Lauren Hartzog and Tiffany Omahundro. We'll be back on Wednesday with another episode. See you then. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.
2: If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.mx
3: slash you know. Hey, grownups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself